dear readers, the episode that you're about to hear was recorded in the past. Carrie and I have a really good habit that we've built, which is because we both sometimes go out of town for work or for family, we backlog our recordings so that we can hopefully continue to offer you a truly darkly creepy episode every single Friday, regardless of whether we were in town making one that week. Uh, and what that means is that a lot of the episodes you're going to hear in the coming weeks are going to seemingly ignore the pandemic and the crisis that we're now experiencing in our world. Yeah. And that is not our intention. And I want you to know that uh, we're doing everything we can we're trying to stay safe. We're trying to not be part of a problem that is uh, the spread of this. And we're bored at, ho- at home just like you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we, we hope to be some respite for you in these times of quarantine. I know it's really hard to stay sane and anxiety-free. And I know certainly for me when I'm on social media, it's been a hellscape. It's been – I mean, because everybody, everybody is having these opinions and everything. And I think, like – our mental health is taking a full-on tax at this moment. I think that uh, what's nice about us offering you these episodes that we pre-recorded is that the focus is not going to be on what's going on. And I'm sure that you are not, I would hope, looking to your podcast uh, or to us to do deep dives into it because it's all around you, right? It's surrounding you. So maybe you need a little part of the day here and there that is about something else. So let this be that. Yeah, let us be your truly darkly creepily escape. And we're being safe and we're social distancing and quarantining and... You know, doing all those precautions and washing our hands and stuff like that. And so we're currently well more than six feet we apart. Are, we are on full mat away. And mat when is, they tell us to stay stop, at home, uh, hanging out together, Carrie's going to move in. So <laughs> that's the big plan. We will always find a way. Either way, you're going to get episodes every Friday. Um, but stay safe, stay sane. Um, yeah. Yeah. Enjoy the episode. Enjoy the app. You can pickle, you can talk, you can chip, you can pick a picky, picky, you can dig, you can dig. <laughs> God. Okay. So we're recording. It's happening. Carrie said to my son tonight that her two greatest fears were sharks (laughs) and being judged by others. Is that what you said? Um, Or disappointing others? I think it was disappointing others. I don't think it was. I think it it was disappointing others. (laughs) So now he's really afraid of judgmental sharks. We realized that my biggest fear would be judgmental sharks. To be honest, I think Koa was fine. I don't. You think, don't think it affected him? I don't think because I kept saying. Koa, I mean, time will tell. Time will tell. I mean, I hope you'll to, get the therapy bill in a few years. Well, I also like hope that I will have enough power to yield the fruits of that labor of like really fucking up a kid. Well, just have one. It's super easy. <laughs> Not the having them part. The fucking them up part. Well, <laughs> so <laughs> so fun. Good. Um. Okay. So while we were um away, Koa got into like learning names and he 
learn my name while we were gone. But my favorite was that one night we were alone together in a hot tub. I know it sounds weird, but it's true. We were, <laughs> were you sitting. On an, were you on, were you on an episode of The Bachelor? Wait, were you on an episode of The Bachelor with your son? <laughs> <laughs> I know it is. My parents have a hot tub. We were sitting in the hot tub and <clears throat> Koa looked at me. It was quiet. It was peaceful. And he looked over at me and he said, um, is your name Tim? <laughs> and I was like, no. It was so cute. I oh, I didn't tell you hmm. in our last episode. Yeah, I had I suffered an injury of the face. An injury of the face. Mm-hmm. Let me explain. So I was in rehearsal for a show, and I was eating a bagel, as I'm wont to do. It's New York. It's New York, baby. Do what you want. Do what you want. Uh, can I ask? It was in everything, of course. <sighs> Don't be an idiot. Of course it was. Of course it was in everything. So I was eating a bagel and I noticed something weird about my jaw. And so I started massaging it. And then I noticed that my jaw and around my ear was getting more and more swollen. <gasps> and was I had an allergic reaction? No, it's weirder. It's creepier. So I okay. was eating, eating, eating. Was it a spider laying egg <laughs> in your face and then they hatched one day? Less creepy, less creepy, okay, okay, less okay, creepy. Okay, it was okay, okay, in okay. the sweet spot in between those two. Perfect. And I didn't know what the hell was going on. I was like super, super freaked out because when your face starts swelling like by your lymph nodes. So I went home from rehearsal after having like a full tilt freak out and... <laughs> God damn. I started crying because I was just really scared. And then I went. (laughs) So sad. And then I went home. I made an appointment because our insurance system is so fucking broken. I didn't want to go to urgent care or the emergency room. I just wanted to wait because I didn't have a fever. So there was like no signs of infection. Yeah. But it really freaked me out. And so I was eating slowly, but it really hurt to eat. But I just want to show you some pictures. Um, Feel free to swipe. Whoa. Wait, hold on. So that's my face. So it got it kept oh, getting juicy on that side. No. Wait, it gets worse. You're a monster. Oh my god. Wait. <laughs> oh. Wait. It looks It gets bigger. And then that's me with peas on my face. It looks like when you hold a cursor over a shape and you try to widen the side <laughs> of the shape. It looks like someone held the cursor over your like the edge of it's your like, face in one end and, and just, just like was like let's just it. pull it out a little. Carrie would love like she has like a fine jaw on the left side, but on the right side we should really make I don't forget actually what side it was on, but make it like super big. So I went to the doctor the next day and I hadn't eaten anything, and she said, you know what I think it was was a salivary stone. <gasps> Which is like what a, is that? It sounds very serious. It's where anything stone, right? I, you it's don't my want. memoir, by the way. Working title at the moment is Carrie Ipema and the Salivary Stone. That's just gorgeous. People will that's liken check. it to Harry Potter. I think. Yeah, I think that's what we're hoping for is for cross promotion. But most importantly, my friend, my dear dear friend, said, "Carrie, no, this won't be your memoir. This will be a chapter." And I think that that was a really optimistic way of looking at it. But probably they just didn't love the title enough. They were like, oh, no, I think she was afraid. It, I think she was afraid it would define me, and she didn't want this stone to define who I am as a person. The doctor had said that the stone probably passed, and then I went and I picked up some soup because I hadn't eaten because it kept hurting to eat. And as I started eating, my face started swelling again. No, no, the no. stone had not passed. The never-ending story. <laughs> And so what happens is it's a calcium buildup of your salivary gland. And if you think, see, smell, any sense to do with food, 
you start to salivate. And so the saliva was getting... This would be the worst sickness for me to get. All I think about is food. Same. My face would explode. It would pop like a balloon. Same. And so it would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the, like, one of the treatments, one, when I looked at the cause, they said, it usually happens to older men. Check. Check, check. Old man (laughs) who might be going through radiation. Wow. All three of which, none of them are applicable to my life. And so part of the treatment was to suck on lemon drops to overproduce saliva so that it pushes the stone out. Uh, can I ask where it goes out I don't of? know. I think I was acting in it's a, a scene and I felt gland. something. Where does it leave To your body? mouth. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it was like under my jaw, next to my ear. It was like, and so oh. I had a roller and I was constantly massaging because massage helps. A Gwyneth Paltrow jade roller I situation. I was using a jade roller. I was what like, else are you goop use? this shit up. I yeah. said, dear, dear God, give me goop. <laughs> and God is and God Gwyneth, is Paltrow. Gwyneth Paltrow. We all know that. We're not idiots here, folks. It Stay. just happened randomly on a Wednesday, and then it finally left. Hump day of all days. Of all day, and then it finally left my gland. It departed on that Sunday. So it was like a while. Do you miss it? Absolutely not. I did. What was problematic is I went to the doctor, and mm-hmm. she said, let's just get your blood work done. And she took my weight and height, and... On my, I don't know if I want to say this. Uh, oh, just fucking definitely say it. On my way, I, I had gotten on my chart. It said new condition and it listed my BMI. And I looked at my BMI and it Why? said overweight. And it really fucked with me, like really fucked with me. And I. That's so interesting. I talked to my therapist about it. We got to like, we had to unpack it. And I spoke with some friends, and they really supportive. And said that shit is fucking old. It's so and it doesn't old. account for being like a curvy woman, you know. And as a woman, I you know that's all I am is just curves. <laughs> so <I'm> like, <laughs> that's all I have going for me is just that she got some boobs. So that's I, so upsetting. It was, it was upsetting, but the, also the language does feel. Um, it feels harmful. It, it's there to hurt you. It can't be anything else because it's not, it's simplifying it to a degree that just says wrong. It's just telling you well, yeah. your body's wrong and you're not yes. healthy and you're, and you're fucking up mm-hmm. and that's all you can see. Yeah. And I don't know why you would be able to look at something that says overweight and think anything other than that. So the language is broken. Well, it's really fucked too, because for me, it brought up some feelings of myself and super judgmental feelings that I was ashamed to have because I am such a believer in this body positivity movement and feeling comfortable in your own skin. I also really struggle with it in my own life, you know, and having to navigate what it is to possibly be overweight according to uh, your height and weight with clothes on. I see I'm already doing it. I'm already trying to negate. justify, to negate that. Which in is reality. in support of saying that something's right in the system exactly. and you can't look at it that way. And so it's really frustrating to, it's it's a, it's like a double, uh, it's a double confrontation. Me feeling ashamed of how I look and also me having to reckon with like what my, 
prejudices are mm-hmm. against it and me having but again it feels less about other and it's more myself you have to this... do the thing in this case and so many people with weight issues do see i hate that you said weight issues because i'm like it's not an issue i don't have issues quite. no everybody <laughs> has them everybody has them i know i don't think any i don't think i know anybody that doesn't the language is so troublesome mm-hmm. that it's there to make you feel bad. And the fact that the medical community doesn't care about that <laughs> is a good example of how ingrained it is because they, of all people who understand eating disorders and just mental health and how you feel about yourself health. is so fucked. I mean, I guess you could say I had an eating disorder. It was not, I don't like to say it only because I feel like I'm over-dramatizing the situation, which is to say when I was in college, I lost a lot of weight junior year and senior year, and Mm -hmm. and I became really, really tiny, Mm -hmm. and I would do weird things like count nuts, Mm -hmm. um, like weird behaviors where I'm like, for my snack, I will have a quarter banana, things that are a little bit too You're You're going too far, yeah. To be healthy, I think, and normal. Like, if you're hungry, you should eat a banana. The idea that you would cut it up and save parts of it. To me, looking back on that now, that was my darkest time in terms of being very obsessive. I will talk about that time in a sort of romanticized view. But I would venture at the time, you probably didn't feel good in your body. Or did you? I felt proud because right okay i was it super in control and it's yeah. always about that right yeah but i would also say i'll never look like that again and that's okay yeah and i'm totally settled in yeah. that feeling and happy that i feel that way but i did mention to my sister in some sort of conversation about weight that i still struggle with negative thoughts yeah which is to say things like looking in the mirror and thinking you're gross or you are fat or you don't deserve because um, of how I look. And she was so shocked and was like, I would never think someone like you would have that. And I was like, why? Why would you never think someone like me would have that? And she said something to the effect of because you're so normal, like your weight meaning is so normal, like yeah. no one would look at you and ever think wins at all overweight. Yeah. And to me, that was so funny because because I was I think that everybody does that. I think that there is some <laughs> degree of body dysmorphia present in every woman's brain because of our society, because of our culture. And the idea that you would look at somebody and go, they're so skinny, so they must not have those negative <laughs> thoughts is wrong. I also think, too, is we're way harder on ourselves than other people. And so I was so worried when I got this diagnosis, diagnosis murder, that <laughs> I that I had reverse body dysmorphia, that I was like, I didn't think I was. That You're I like, thought, I feel great. Why are you telling me there's an issue? Why are you telling me there's a fucking issue? Why do I have to? Maybe I've been wrong. I mean, I actually don't feel great. I feel, you know, I think I feel something that many people feel, which is when you look at yourself, you look at the part of your body you hate most Mm -hmm. and you just 
you don't look at all the other parts of your body that make you who you are and that you're grateful for and, you know, that are really wonderful, but you focus on every negative thing of your body and it's so fucking awful. It's a really fucking hard conversation. It's really hard because Lizzo always comes to mind because she's such a fucking champion for women in so many ways. Yeah. And I love Lizzo. But she talks about where she's at with body positivity and she says it's a, every day she has to work on it. Like every day she's actively loving her body in a way that is active. It's not just like, this is normal. I'm passive. She has to really And it's different than it. just dismissing negativity exactly. to be P- body positive is not just I found a way to dismiss negativity. It's doing that. It's finding specific ways to be positive to love about your body. We are going on such an amazing tangent. I know we're like celebrating life and womanhood and beauty. Um. By the way, you're listening to truly darkly creepily you wouldn't know it <laughs> you wouldn't know it i'm carrie Ipema. you would think it's a weird self-help station i'm quinlan poster <laughs> thanks for joining us i'm dipping down to refill my wine Wait, this conversation we need to i need to refill my wine too if you want to get to the heart of the situation i did go first last time i'm gonna go first you feel good about it I feel great about it. In fact i would really like to go first that's perfect i would really like to go second oh because you know what they say. What do they say, Quinn? First is the worst. Second is the best. What's and third? Third is the one with the hairy chest. Speaking of body positivity, how dare you? <laughs> I'm just telling it like it is. I mean, I'm just being honest here. Okay. I am doing the story of George Joseph Smith. Have no idea. No Sounds idea. Sounds like the most boring name ever given. Truly so. the most boring name ever given. So this story takes place in the eight or in the early 1900s. So George was born 1872 in London, and he's always been just a bad egg. He's not been a good kid. He went to reformatory, which I looked up was just basically juvenile detention, at the age of nine for stealing or for some other bad shit. And then he later served time for more swindling and theft. Not a good dude. So you could serve time at nine. Well, you go to a reformatory. It's like a boarding school. school. Reformatory is like a school for bad kids. Yes. Today we'd put you on Dr. Phil. Someone would yell at you and you'd go on a long hike in the woods and eat rats (laughs) and then go home to your parents. Is that a thing? That is a thing. Isn't that like the outward out- bound? Yes, but they do, like for the bad kids. Outward I was, bound. Were you ever risk of being a bad? Were you ever a bad kid? Not that level. See, I was. I don't think at any level a bad kid. I shoplifted once. I got caught. I got pulled into the King Super's back room with my mother present because I shoplifted with her present, and I had to get a picture of me holding the blue eyeliner and blue nail polish. Why both blue? Huh. It was the late 90s. Yes. And they took my picture and I cried a lot. And I was so embarrassed and so broken over the experience because I remember thinking, it will will never be better. I'll never fix this. And my mother will always be ashamed of me and always hate me for this. And when we got home, I just asked her, please don't tell dad. I, to this day, actually do not know if she did, but then I got 
in the shower and like ugly cried sitting in the shower Mm. thinking my life is over that this happened. Yeah. Mine was I stole a piece of bubble gum from a gas station because my dad wouldn't get it for me. Age? Five or six, maybe. That's not that dark, though. And I went and I bragged about it to my dad. We got him because I wanted him to buy me this. It was five cents bazooka, you know, those square ones. <laughs> and I got in the car and I go, Dad, look what I did. And I... <laughs> And he goes, you better go back in there and give it back to that person and apologize. So, of course, I started crying. And so I had to go back and give Um, it to them. And that was the last time I stole. (laughs) I was also stealing the makeup for Uh a friend's birthday present. Does it make you think any differently of me? Oh, I actually don't think any. I don't think poorly of you as like a child. Like it was your first time stealing. I think you don't totally realize. I think there. But then I moved on to heist. You stole it was millions just, of dollars. It was a stepping stone. This was like a weed. It was a gateway. Oh, it was theft. a gateway. It was a gateway. It was a gateway. George Joseph Smith. Bad guy. Just kind of a turd. In 1896, he was in prison for a year for persuading a woman to steal from her employers. So he's starting to get this vibe of using women. He used the money that this woman stole um, to open a baker shop in. 1898, so two years later, Oliver George Love, a.k.a. George Joseph Smith, married Caroline Beatrice Thornhill, and this was his only legal marriage. And they moved to London, and she worked as a maid, and he convinced her to steal from her employers. And after his bread shop went bankrupt, she was caught for stealing and in sentenced to 12 months. And then on her re- release, she incriminated him. She finally... Fair. It sounds like he... He was manipulative and an ass. She incriminated him and then he was in prison for two years. So now he's 12. No, just kidding. <laughs> so now he's 14. Um, <laughs> I need to make sure that made... Did that make sense? Yeah, I'm following Okay, it. cool. So while she was in jail and stuff... He married another woman. Wait, she was in jail longer than him. No, she was in jail for 12 months. And then he, she, when she got out, she was like, it was that guy. Okay. It was him. And then he got two years. But before, while she was in jail, he married another woman. Which has probably made her. He, he was a bigamist, basically. He practiced bigamy. Good. Um, that's why Carolyn, this first wife, was the only actual. He just kept marrying people. He just kept marrying people. And I will go through the list in one moment. But after he, she got out, so Carolyn got out 12 months. He went in for two years. When he got out, she fled to Canada. He then went back to his other wife that he had married while she was in prison. Mm-hmm. And he cleared out that wife's savings and left. Just to be clear, he married Carolyn. She got caught stealing, went to prison. He married another woman. Carolyn got out, imprisoned him for two years. When he got out, Carolyn fucking got out, left Dodge, and went to Canada. Mm -hmm. He then went to wife number two, cleared out her savings, and left her heartbroken. Okay? Okay. So then, a couple years later, June 1908, he marries Florence Wilson. Less than one month later, July 3rd, he left her, but not before taking 30 pounds, which is... 3,000 pound in this money, in today money, and sold all of her belongings. So he married her, stole everything, left. 
A month later, he married this woman, Edith Pegler. And by when I say married, to be clear, they're not really married. <laughs> because well, he's marrying them and it's not legal. It's not legal. But according but, to them, they'd probably say, it's my husband. Yeah, exactly. So Edith Pegler, she replied to an ad of his for a housekeeper. He would then disappear for months on a whim, telling her that he was off to do his trade, sell antique, make money. But actually, he was marrying other women and leaving them and taking all their money and coming back to Edith. It's thought that Edith was his true love because he kept returning to her. He loved her. 1909, he married a woman, Sarah Freeman, under the alias George Rose Smith. He um, took money, sold her war bonds, and took a total of 400 pound, which at that time had to be 40,000 pound. He then married this woman, Bessie Monday, married Alice Burnham. In 1914, he married Alice Reed. So he has a hobby. He has a fucking hobby and a con. He's got it on lock. In total, he entered seven marriages between 1908 and 1914, and he mostly took the wives' possessions and disappeared. It appears that he was really fucking lazy, but he was very resourceful and the ladies loved him. Ladies loved George Joseph Smith, whatever name he was calling himself because he changed his name every time. But the women fucking flocked to him. In fact, he wasn't, it was reported that he wasn't handsome. He sported this like bushy ginger mustache vibe. But he possessed, I loved reading this, but he possessed an arrogance that apparently irritated, irritated every man that he encountered. Like, all the dudes he met. Hated him. And the women loved him. hated him. The women flocked to him. God, what is it about confidence? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What it, is it? It works. So the father of one of the brides said his eyes looked like a mad dog's. Ew. He just had creepy fucking eyes. Or, ooh. But one of the wives had said, one of his ex-wives had said, the power lay in his eyes. So some weird eye shit was happening with George Joseph Do we know the eye color? I don't know. Everything is black and white. It's like Pleasantville. So they were grayish. (laughs) So there was like a light gray. They were like a light to, to dark gray. Have you heard that if you can see the white around someone's eyes that they're crazy? I wonder if he had the white star on his eyes. Like, like if you, like... I don't think he did because I don't think you'd be attracted to that look. He did say, like, a mad dog's. Hmm. Isn't that like a malted liquor? Mad dog? <laughs> <laughs> mad do dog think, moody. Do you think... Mad eye moody. Oh. Mad dog moody. <laughs> <laughs> what Harry Potter oh, are you watching? no. You're reading off-brand. You're reading, like... You're reading Google <laughs> Translate. <off>. Henry Potter, <laughs> my favorite book. <laughs> that's good so this was all during the late victorian period so apparently there were just a shit ton of these heirs who had so much money and there were not a lot of men around so george joseph smith just had his pick of the litter and collected seven wives within how many years within six years so he was busy Seven wives for one brother. Again, another fan of seven <laughs> brides for seven brothers. Yep. Favorite. Always that's, goes back to that. That's a truly darkly creepy fa- fan favorite. Yes. Fan favorite. 
Okay, in January 1915, this detective inspector, Arthur Nell, received a letter that included two newspaper clippings, one of which was dated December 1914, um, and this woman, Margaret Elizabeth Lloyd, her maiden name was Lofty. She was found dead at the age of 38 and was found in a bathtub by her husband, John Lloyd. And then in the second, the second clipping was dated December 13th, 1913. So a year previously, Alice Smith. How do you say it? Nay? <laughs> you know how they say nay? N-E-E with an apostrophe. N-E-E? When you're reading an article and it says their married name and nay is like their maiden name. Oh, I don't know that. I don't know that reference. Oh, it's in articles. It's in articles. Do you read? Um, <laughs> they? Burnham. I try not to. I tried not to if I can For my beauty. It. Okay, so 1913, the previous year, December 1913, Alice Smith died suddenly in her bathtub and was found by her husband, George Smith. So there were these two cases in different parts of England. So they were not in the same town. They had communicated or somehow they found clippings. The father of one of the victims had seen a clipping from something else. And they thought they were really, yeah, really, really similar. And so they sent this to Detective Inspector Arthur Nell. Okay, I'm going to go through each of the victims and kind of tell you a little bit about them. So Margaret, she was one that passed away in 1914. She died in a small tub, and it was only three quarters full when she was found. So it was not full to the brim. There was no sign of violence, save for just a tiny bruise above her elbow. Her husband, however, her will was made three hours before she died, and the sole beneficiary was her husband. This was, again, a month before Detective Nell had gotten the letter. So her husband had submitted a claim for a settlement to his lawyer for the will. So he was waiting. Her husband was waiting on the ruling to get all the money. She also had a life insurance policy that was taken out by her husband for 500 pounds, which is 50,000 today. So a decent health and uh, life insurance as well as um, the will. She withdrew all of her savings on the day she died. So Detective Nell had asked the coroner to write a favorable report. So saying that, yes, her death was accidental, blah, blah, blah. The detective asked the coroner to mm -hmm. do that. Because he felt that the action was, activity was highly suspicious and he wanted to make sure that John Lloyd her husband came back to get the money because he would have to go to the lawyer's office to get the money. So by writing, so in order he for didn't help, want him have a, to have a tip off that they knew it was fishy. Is that mm-hmm. what you're yeah. saying? Yes. Okay. So he wanted to make sure that John Lloyd thought he was going to get the payout so that when he so came he'd to come the, back and so they wanted to entrap him a little bit. A little bit. Okay. So the landlady had said that she heard the sound of splashing upstairs followed by a sigh followed by loud music coming from the sitting room where she discovered John Lloyd playing a hymn on the organ. And she believes that to be possibly to give him some sort of alibi that he was there and playing music the whole time while his wife died. Alice Smith, the second victim from 1913, the year previously, she had an insurance policy and also her will put everything in her husband's name. And they found out that when they found her, It was also highly suspicious. She was under the water. I think her legs were sticking out. But the landlady had said that when they had taken the lodgings, when they had agreed to stay there, 
it was only after her husband, Mr. Smith, checked to make sure they were checked out the bathtub. He inspected the bathtub and was like, yeah, we'll stay here. Yeah, here's fine. We'll stay here. <laughs> so <laughs> he looked at the bathtub. Okay. He was like, is there a bath? Just to be clear. Bathtub? Bathtub, we love baths. We love a nice bath. So on February 1st, a man fitting Lloyd's and Smith's description appeared at the lawyer's office ready to get that cash out. Cash in, baby. And now the detective inspector, inspector detective, whatever, approached him and asked if he was John Lloyd. And he replied, yeah, that's me. And then immediately now was like, are you George Smith? And he said, no, 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 I'm not George Smith. And then Nell put the pressure on and said that he would take him in for questioning on suspicion of bigamy. Ooh, which she definitely... Which she definitely was guilty yeah. of. And then with through that pressure, Smith admitted that he was Mr. Smith as well, and then he was arrested. So he was arrested for suspicion of bigamy and um, suspicion of murder. This is when this guy, Bernard Spilsbury, comes in. And I really like Bernard. I do. He's a pathologist. And this case is really important, historically speaking, because it was the first time forensic pathology came into play in terms of connecting evidence. And anyway, so he was a pathologist who was asked to come in and figure out how these women died because all of them had no visible trauma. It seemed that they just died suddenly inches of water in you know they were they were submerged but i'll get into that in a minute so he was a home office pathologist which i really like the idea of being like i work from home i'm a pathologist um (laughs) but he consultant was available i'm a brain surgeon from home i'm a home brain surgeon. i work from home i'm a brain surgeon i throw on some love is blind and i just fucking have fun it's nice it's nice to do it from home (laughs) i don't have to leave i wear scrubs to bed wake up scrubs yeah um mm. Mm. So Bernard Spilsbury, the pathologist, comes in and he exhumes Margaret Lloyd's body. So Margaret Lloyd's body is exhumed and he needed to make sure he needed to determine if it was for sure drowning and if it was accidental or force. Because, again, there was no physical signs of any force. So the bruise was still there. He found two microscopic marks, but the evidence of drowning was not extensive at all. There was no sign of heart or circulatory disease. So it appears that the death was instantaneous, like a stroke. And so then they looked for if it was poison, to which they found out, no, it was not poison. And finally, he proposed that they run an experiment in the very same tub that Lloyd died in. So they had the actual tub sent to London to his office. The bathtub? The bathtub that she died in. Oh, I love it. Where he's like doing tests. Send me the evidence. I only work from home. Bring in the bathtub. So crazy, right? And so then, so then it was that February that this started picking up speed that these two deaths in a bathtub that might be connected and the same person was connected with both of them as their husband. There was an article in the newspaper that was called The Brides and the Baths. A police officer from another part of England read it and said, hmm, that sounds like familiar to me too. Familiar to him too. So I don't know if you remember, and I mentioned that he married this woman, Bessie Monday. Sure. Um, One of the earlier. many. So in 1912, he married this woman, Bessie Monday, and her husband, Henry Williams, was living in a rental house with no bath. And then... So that was his name when he was married to yeah. her. Yeah. So his okay. name changes. I apologize. His name has gone from George... Jo- it's George Joseph Smith, but it's like George Rose Smith. 
John Lloyd, George Smith. I like when he keeps it consistent and it's changes easier. just the middle name. To it's keep just track easier. Of. Here he's Henry Williams. So Henry Williams and Bessie Monday, they live in a rental house and there's no tub in it. So what does he do? He rents a tub. So they have a tub rental come in because tubs what? don't need to be. They can be rentals because there's no like, is faucet. There's no tap. So you can just fill a tub and you can rent it. No problem. He's and renting a tub. she was like, my husband really wants this tub. That's wild. So it's just so interesting to be a serial killer it and really have your weapon of choice to be a bathtub. Well, it's just so hard to get your hands on. I'm like... You know, maybe you should have gone with a knife or a gun. A bathtub is really hard to bring everywhere. See, I think the only reason, I actually think it's the smartest thing because it doesn't, like, I think the only reason these two deaths were connected was because it was suspicious. But if nothing had ever come of this. Ooh, do you know what it reminds me of? Mm. It reminds me of the staircase. Mm-hmm. And the idea that his weapon of choice to make it so impossible to decide he was a killer was to use a staircase to kill these two women. Yeah. And I don't know. I actually haven't watched the full one. I should know better than to think you've watched something. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I will do it as a story because it's so cuckoo bananas. Most people know it at this point, but it's worth it. So this woman, Bessie Monday, they rented Rented a bathtub. So he claimed his wife had epileptic fits. Likely story. So and he I'm brings the queen of Sheba. And oh, no. <laughs> so he brings her to the doctor and she's like, yo, I was just complaining of a headache. Like, it's really just a headache. But silly early 1900s women don't believe him. So the doctor gives her some medicine. And then on July 12th, 1912... Her husband, Henry Williams, I will use air quote, Henry Williams, calls and says his wife is having another fit. The doctor says, I'm going to, I'll come in. He checks on her. He says, I'll come back tomorrow afternoon. However, the next morning he was informed by Henry Williams that his wife had an epileptic fit in the tub and died. Hmm. Hmm. Um, By drowning. When the doctor found Bessie, her head was underwater and her legs were stretched out straight with her feet out of the water. So her top half was submerged. There was, no, again, no trace of violence. So it was claimed that she drowned from an epileptic fit. So she had her will made five days before her death and her husband got, I'll say, the equivalent of 257,000 pound. Spillsbury, meanwhile, the pathologist, was, excuse me, conducting an autopsy on Alice Smith, who was the second victim that I mentioned. And he found all of the same sort of things as he found in Margaret Lloyd's autopsy. Not any stress, no long signs of drowning, seems instantaneous, no poison. And you know what he did? He said, bring the tub on in. Bring the tub. Bring the tub. Gotta see the tub. This guy's a tub collector at this point. He's a tub collector, truly, truly. So Nell, the detective, had confirmed that Henry Williams, John Lloyd, and George Smith were all the same person. They were all... George Joseph Smith. While Spillsbury examined Bessie Monday's body, he saw one sure sign of drowning, which I thought this was really interesting. He saw a sign of drowning as goose pimples on the skin on her thigh. And I looked up goose pimples as goosebumps. Yeah. I didn't know that was a sign of drowning and that it would stay posthumously. 
bizarre, bizarre. Bizarre, bizarre. And you know what he did after that? What? He brought the tub into London. Oh, why didn't I guess? How did you not guess? It's a real threes here. You're right. Actually, really creepy. One tub, two tub, three, three tub. tub. It's just the count. One tub, two tubs, <laughs> three tubs. Okay. So once he got the tubs. Mo tubs, mo problems. Mo tubs, I mo always prob- say. We've said it once. We'll say it before. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go back in time. We've said it once. We'll say it before. So Bessie Monday, they theorized that she had an epileptic fit, which caused her to drown. So he examined her height. She was 5'7", and the tub was 5 feet. Whether or not her she stiffened when she had a fit or she had violent spasms, she could not physically get under the water. Mm-hmm. There was no way she could submerge herself underwater. Even if her muscles were relaxed, the tub was just too small. But again, she was found with her top submerged and her feet out. Right. So how her body was found, he reasoned Smith must have grabbed her legs and pulled them up and her top party part of the body slid into the water and the sudden flow of water to her nose and throat might have caused shock and sudden loss of consciousness. So go with me here. Someone's having a bath. And they take your legs or your knees and they just pull them shut up, and suddenly shock shoot you. your head under. Um, and you lose okay. consciousness before you know it what's happening. It feels like you would, f- well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can't speak to that. But you picture that they would thrash so, around and fight. Well, the detective had hired several experienced female divers of the same height as the murder victims. I'm going to call them murder victims. Wow. Mm-hmm. I love this. I love his commitment. And so he did the same size and build as the victims. He had each of them in each of the tubs, and he tried to push them underwater by force, but there would have been signs of distress or struggle. And then Nell, unexpectedly to them, pulled the feet of one of the divers, and her head glided underwater before she knew what happened. And then suddenly he saw that the woman was not moving. Oh! <gasps> And he quickly pulled her out, and it took him and a doctor over half an hour to revive her. <gasps> what? Mm-hmm. Why? Because of the way that her, like, it worked. It was so much going up her so nose. So she didn't expect it. She probably inhaled on surprise. It went up her nose. And mouth. hmm Wow. So when she came to, she related that the only thing she remembered was just the rush of water before she lost consciousness. And this confirms Spilsbury's theory. Wow. So he was surprising them to death in a bathtub. And it was their husband. So he went above them and just really fucked up. And that's why there was no other signs of distress on their bodies. That is so crazy. That is a crazy way to kill someone. And it is really interesting Now I kind of understand the bathtub thing because what I'm trying to think about is the first time he did it Mm -hmm. and that he probably thought he would have to fight them. He couldn't have known, right? And then he might be surprised himself and was like, that was so easy. I just need to duplicate that forever. I don't know if he got lucky. There's just something real fucked up about it. don't get lucky four times. He must have known what he was doing after that first one, but well, and then he must have been like, it's so easy. I have to keep doing it the same way. Well, I mean, I've never killed someone or wanted to, but wouldn't you want the easiest and like quickest? 
No. <clears throat> if I were going to kill someone, it would be with my bare hands. Because the hmm. only way I would ever want to kill someone is if, is if were... I was so rageful, so, so mad at them. And then I would have to just live that in a very real way. Okay, fair. So George Joseph Smith was arrested February 15th, 1915. So really a month and a half after that initial letter. So this, for me, this case felt very quick in terms of discovery. I was surprised. Well, that pathologist was a rock star. Go home. Listen, it's an advocate for working from home, truly. He was formally charged for the murders of Bessie Williams, Alice Smith, and Margaret Lloyd on March 23rd, 1915. He could only be charged with the murder of Bess Monday pre the English per the English law, but they used the other deaths as a way to establish patterns. So Bessie Monday, since she was the first victim, I don't think they could try for three. So Smith decided not to give any evidence in his defense at all. So I don't know if you remember, I mentioned this woman, Caroline, the woman who went to Canada in the yeah. beginning. So... She was still his lawful wife, so she turned up to witness the events at the trial. She fucking showed up. She was gratified, no doubt, that such a wicked man was getting his just desserts. She just wanted to come because she knew he was a fucking monster. So Smith was confident he would get acquitted, even though he lost his temper at one point, telling the court that during police investigations that he had not committed a murder and could not be sentenced to death. But then came the testimony of Dr. Spilsbury. yelling at the jury ever works, by the way. Spoiler alert, it didn't. So the bath used for the murder of Alice Burnham was produced, and the pathologist prepared to demonstrate how, in his view, Smith had drowned his brides. So he was going to demonstrate for now, except there was a problem. The divers, these young women, were wearing a bathing costume, and that was hardly appropriate for an English courtroom. What if they wore a powdered wig with their bathing costume? <laughs> Still not okay. Oh, It doesn't matter right. what's on the top of their head. It matters what's below the neck. That's always what counts, And I ladies. love the idea of a bathing costume. I like when it's not a bathing suit. So the jury were taken to a private room where the bath was filled with water and the willing participant stepped in. She reclined as one does in a bath and Dr. Spilsbury promptly raised her legs and the water rushed up her nose and into her mouth. And it was so effective that she as well had to be revived by artificial resuscitation. This is nuts. They kept doing this. And she was expecting it. She was like expecting the pull. She knew what the demo was. And she still fucking passed out and needed to be resuscitated. They're just lucky they didn't kill her. Well, they were women. They were disposable. It's no big deal. That's true. They were props. So it took the jury 20 minutes on July 1st to find him guilty and sentence him to death. How did they kill him? Do you know? He was hanged on August 13th by hangman John Ellis. Apparently, right before he died, he was screaming, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And the articles that I was reading were saying how, you know, the death penalty has left but if one person deserved it, it was George Joseph Smith. George Joseph Smith is to bathtubs as Anthony Perkins is to showers. And I think we can all agree on that. Who's Anthony Perkins? Psycho. Thank you. Oh, I haven't what? seen Never it. Never seen it. Oh, God. Why do I? It's like, oh, why do I bother? Why do I bother? The forensic. So, again, this I had said before, but this is a really monumental case because of forensic pathology where – 
they were using murders to connect, having establishing a pattern from the other two deaths where he was their husband was also helpful. So they use that in later trials for other murderers of establishing pattern. So this is known as the brides and the bath murders. There's plenty of stories and movies and plays based on this. In fact, the reason I got the story was I was a part of a theater festival and one of the plays was called Drowning Girls. And it's the three women and they meet I guess I didn't see it, but someone had told me about it because I don't see things. But the three women meet. They Someone had relayed the story to me and told me it was based on reality. And I thought, I got to look into this. Yeah, great which story. I did. It's a great story. What's really interesting is that George Joseph Smith's wax figure was exhibited in the Chamber of Horrors at Madame Tussauds in <gasps> London. Ooh. Really creepy, Need a right? pick with that. Need a pick with that. I wonder if it, ca- it captured his mad dog eyes. Have you Google imaged him at all? I have. Let me look him up again. Well, I get, we'll post a picture of mad-eyed, moody, George How dare Bernard you? Don't be Shaw, whatever his name is. George Bernard Shaw. <laughs> bathtub killer. The bathtub killer, I prefer to call him. As named by me. That's that bushy ginger beard, baby. I hmm, I don't really see what people got out of that. I'm going to tell you a story now. I have this idea that I'm just going to tell you this story. I like to not maybe name the story necessarily because let's just let it unfold sometimes. You know, like I don't want to. Sp- I'm fully supportive. Okay. Because sometimes the, if I were to name the story, it would involve a, just a hint of spoiler that I don't think is necessary. No. Well, notice how I didn't start with the bathtub. Correct. Yeah, please we don't. We can't do it. No, you no, can't no, do no, it. no, 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 no. I got my information on this story, though, from Unsolved Mysteries, Haunted Palace blog, and Real Unexplained Mysteries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you can tell right there that it's going to be a fun one. In the late 17th century, a fellow named Daniel Audi, who some called Audi. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Any relation to the car? It's A-U-T-Y was the nickname. Audi. We'll call him Audi. He was a man that made his living as a counterfeiter of currency. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you've heard of it. He moved to the small town of Kirby Whisk in North Yorkshire, England. And I looked up this town. It's insanely adorable looking. It's a rolling hills, cute bridge. It looks like the kind of place that would have like a town square and you would know the butcher. I've been to that part of England, and it's just like that. But can we talk about how did a story with a guy based in England, and you did, and we always have these weird connections between our stories? I think we have a psychic connection, because we also did olden timesy England. Yeah, we, we both did. Old did. We did, like, axe murders of the same. We did cannibal. Like, it was a whole thing. We have a problem. We have a problem. Thank goodness we're both now texting my husband to make sure we don't double up. <laughs> Which she was like, text me, text me. And I was like, stop. I already texted you. Anyway, it's causing a lot of uh, problems in our marriage. So we'll see <laughs> how that unfolds. We'll see folks. how that unfolds. We'll see I if there's name, any bathtubs involved. I won't name the story. I won't name the story before I find out what happens. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this was a quiet town, and Audie thought it would be a nice, calm place to practice his trade of making fake loot. So he purchases an old farm, and he builds a large hidden chamber with a crazy cellar and a secret passageway to get into it. So he was, like, super crafty, I guess. Well, if you're making fake money, 
Yeah, crafty. Correct. He was a DIY guy. What would he do today? Have an Etsy shop for sure. (laughs) He puts a very robust locking mechanism on it and has this cool secret thing. It's basically like a sex dungeon, but for making money, not love. Mm. You would think that dungeon will come into play. And I regret to inform you, I was just really excited that he built it. So I talked about it. It won't come up again. <laughs> you're like he hasn't. You're just honestly. You're just pitching to me a show idea. Is what yes, you're doing. Yeah, and then like picture him building the dungeon. He's sweating. <laughs> he's wearing coveralls. He's like he's wiping his head. Do they wear coveralls at the eighth late seventeenth century? They had to wear something like that. Well, they had to wear something. I don't think they were doing it naked. They didn't do it naked. That'd be dangerous with the amount of wood running around with your wood. You don't want to no splinters wood. in places you don't want splinters. You do not want splinters there. So just like how whenever rich people have farms or beach houses, you have to name them, right? <laughs> like, did you know David Sedaris has a beach house and he named it the C-section? And What's I love the name naming of this houses. House? This house, haven't named it yet. I kind of want to name it the manor, but it, maybe it needs something manor. We put up all these weird velvet curtains to soundproof this room, so it feels like it should be a manor. Oh, maybe we'll take suggestions, dear readers. If you donate to our Patreon, you can name oh, this you house. You can name my house. <laughs> you have to be like a 10 a month, though. Um, <laughs> if you had a farm, what would you name it? Deja Mu. <laughs> Did you just come up with that? Yeah. Oh, I'm so mad. What would what? you name it? <gasps> oh, I have I have what he should have named it because he was a counterfeiter. It's a really counterfeiter. good. Counterfeiter. Oh, that's really good. Oh. I was gonna say an utter day, an utter dollar. <laughs> okay, enough. Cow You're puns. here. <laughs> Listen, he named it Danity Hall. Sex dungeon, Danity Hall. Yes. Great. Audie had a daughter named Elizabeth. Further proof he lacked. Creativity in the naming department. She falls in love with a local guy named Thomas Busby. And they're married, even though Audie is not super into Thomas. Thomas kind of has this history of being a drunkard and a thief. And he Mm. even had this really great nickname, Drinking Thomas. (gasps) This is every parent's dream to marry (laughs) their child. Oh, I'm going to marry Drinking Thomas. Basically... The important thing to note is that he was not the kind of drinker that was a Bud Light moment drinker that would, like, give you a hug. He was the kind of drinker that he was a mad drunk. He was an angry drunk. So despite them not having the best relationship from the get-go, Audie and Busby decide to work together. I guess it's a family trade situation. So even though they have a trying relationship, they're like, let's make this a legal family business work. So Busby and Elizabeth take up lodging in the town at a local inn down the road from Donity Hall. And I imagine tensions were probably starting to rise between Busby and his father-in-law, Audie. Why the fuck would he go into business with him? This is like, ugh, dumb, dumb It's a really, really, really bad idea. But they're neighbors now. They work together. It's not wise, but it's happening. (laughs) And of course, like we didn't see it coming, one night Busby and Audie get into it. Audie tries to drag his daughter away from Busby Basically being like, you're done with my daughter. Audie goes to drag her away after the fight. So the fight's okay. already... In other words, Busby's not there. And Audie's trying to take his daughter 
out of the house to be like, you're done. You're coming back to Donaby Hall. I hate your husband. Your marriage is over. And she was like, that's not my husband is a mean drunk. I'm not about to walk out of here without telling him that's not going to go well for me either. So she said, we have to hang out here till he gets home. Oh, I'm scared. But we all know Busby's hobby is blacking out. So he shows up home and he's, of course, tied one on. So the argument gets crazier. They and totally out of control. Audie starts yelling at Busby that he's doesn't deserve his daughter, that he's whatever, a loser, a drunk. And Busby probably, I'm editorializing a little, Do cannot it. even engage in the fight because he's so, so drunk, drunk that he's probably like drunk circle arguing. Busby, when he came back to the end drunk, Audie was sitting in Busby's favorite chair. So he's kind of just stuck on that point during the argument oh, and repeating God. that. You can totally see that drunk person, too. That like I can't... know that drunk person. I've been that drunk person. We're like, yeah, I'm a char. That's my favorite chair. Yeah, so it's, it's going nowhere. So Audie goes back to Donity Hall at the end of the argument. Elizabeth stays behind with fun times drunky McGillicuddy, her husband, Busby. Uh. And Busby is fuming, can't get over the fight, is still drunk circle talking, and finally decides, fuck it, I'm going to walk to Donity Hall to keep fighting. And she's like, okay, sounds fun. Good night. At that point, pick your battles. Yeah, totally. Can't take it on. She can't blame her, does not want to engage it. No. But what ends up happening that night, and this is where it gets interesting, I read all these articles. There are a, a couple that say he strangled Audie. What? But more than likely, he bludgeoned him to death with a counterfeiting hammer. Either way, he 100% goes and kills his father-in-law that night. Oh, no. So they find the body, and Busby's charged, tried, found guilty of murder. In 1702, he's hanged. When they're on the way to the gallows, he says, can I have one more drink at my favorite pub in my favorite chair at the inn? Loves, and he loves furniture, that guy. He loves his chair. He loves that inn. He loves to drink. So he's like, this is my whole, it's the beginning of last meal yeah. request. So this is his final meal. When he finishes, he says, may sudden death come to anyone who dares sit in my chair. And then... He goes to the gallows. He's hung. He's cut down, just for your interest, dipped in pitch, and hanged from a gibbet. Okay? That's what we did back then. Got to dip you in pitch. What the fuck is pitch? It's like... And what's a gibbet? I think it's like tar, essentially. And what's a gibbet? It's like um, an old school... You know what it is, because you've seen it in every... You've seen it in every old and timey... Yeah, but where isn't that where you're hung? hung? Yeah, but I. But they just it's, like, like let I think him. it's it's about like hanging someone publicly. I think we're gonna dip him in because why would you dip a body in pitch except to, to be like it. we're dipping it in tar? To I don't know. It feels like it just was like, um shame corporal double fuck you to the body kind of thing. Oof, oof. Okay, so what is this power that this chair possesses now? I feel like that's where this is going. After the execution, the inn was renamed the Busby Stoop Inn. And the owner of the inn at the time was known as, um, I liked this, they said, known as a money spinner. So that's just somebody that's 
basically good at marketing and knows that any press is good press. So he's mm-hmm. telling everybody that visits about the chair and about Busby and how Busby liked to sit in it. And now he's dead. And he's kind of knows that he might get more business if he talks up the chair how it's maybe haunted or how he yelled out this curse or whatever. He's into it. So he's spreading that tale and it does prove to be kind of an attraction. So people hear hear about it. The gossip does spread. The first reported death associated with the chair is way later. So remember he got hung in 1702. 1702. So the first death happens in 1894. Almost 200 years later, a chimney sweep in 1894 is drinking in the pub all evening and decides to sit in the chair and is found the next morning hanging from a pole outside. What? Yeah, so his death is ruled as suicide, but there's so much gossip about the chair that people really want to associate it with the cursed chair and sitting in it. And then during the Second World War, the pub becomes a very popular drinking spot with the RCAF airmen, and they would dare each other and goad each other to sit in the chair. In the middle of wartime, come on, why take any extra chances? measuring happens everywhere, all the time. So, (laughs) (laughs) these guys are like, I'll sit in the chair, I'll sit in the chair, and everybody who sat in the chair would not return from their missions at the time of the war. And then, in... 1968, Tony Earnshaw has taken over the pub at this point. That's his name. And it's still the same. It's the same pub. Buzz, Busby's but it, stupid. It's the same name. Yeah. God, why are we naming things after murderers and like just like bad guys? Yeah. Well, it was a good marketing, honestly. Exactly. Great marketing. Exactly. So the guy that now owns the Busby Stupid, Tony Earnshaw, overhears two airmen doing what I just said. They're like, truth dare, double dare, promise or repeat. Uh, they're like slumber party gaming at each other about the chair. They're playing light as a feather, stiff as a board. They're doing off everything. They're playing never have I ever. And they're double daring people. They're prank calling. They're creating. They're playing dream date. Yes. Paper cut phones or whatever. And they're prank calling. (laughs) They're doing who's going to sit in the chair. And they both end up sitting in the chair because they both have really big dicks. Whatever happened, RIP, because they get in a car to go back to the Air Force and it swerves off the roadway and hits a tree and they both die on the way to the hospital. Then there's a story that a local in the neighborhood was told about a driver who picked up an airman there. So the airman asked to go to the bathroom and they stop at Busby Stupin. The airman goes in to go to the bathroom and the driver is sitting waiting for the airman to pee, but it's taking forever, I guess. So he's probably like... Maybe this is a number two situation. I don't even really know this guy. Why am I Are waiting for him to... Are you editorializing this or is this actually what he said? <laughs> no, I'm definitely editorializing. No, I, um, I wanted you to be like, no. Oh, no, this is scientific. They this found is, the stool sample. It. No. Um, <laughs> so, well, it is a story about a chair. Maybe they did find a stool. It is. Oh, <laughs> she went there, folks. She went there. I cannot help it. Um, so he gets... I'm sick of waiting. I'm going to beat it. The airman comes out and is livid. But they were both going back to the same base. So he gets there and he gets a building brick and smashes the head of the driver and kills him. Wait a minute. You might need to repeat that for me. So what's weird is I don't think the driver sat in the chair in that case. It was just a haunted story about stopping at the inn. 
the two guy the guy was going to the airbase and just smashed his head in. The guy who was waiting for them while they took a the shit. The guy who was giving him a ride didn't wait for him and left him there. And so the airmen came back and just and killed came. him. So this is a he story about anger management with, issues. This is a story about people who are just too angry for their own good. It's an ordinate, inordinate amount of deaths as related to people that stopped by this inn and sat in the chair. Mm-hmm. So through the early 1970s, this is recent, the chair claimed a number of victims, including a cleaning lady who was diagnosed with a brain tumor after just bumping into the chair. A number of cyclists and motorcyclists suffered fatal road accidents after sitting in it. A hitchhiker spent two nights at the inn, presumably sat in the chair, and then was run over. And a local man died of a heart attack shortly after sitting in the chair. Why? So is it just keeps chair? happening. You sit in the chair, you die. You sit in the chair, you die. You sit in the chair, you die. Does the chair have, like, a little, like, rope on it? No, it's just in the pub. So you could sit on it without knowing? Yes. That's fucked. Uh, but everybody kind of knows because I think it's always empty and then people are always talking about it. I think it's a... I well, I guess I can't picture the atmosphere. I'm going to tell you. A, I, I, I picture there's probably a sign and people are like, isn't that cool? It's haunted. But then everybody's like, let's try it out. See, I'm going to say, <clears throat> I don't think I would sit in it. Oh, I wouldn't sit in it at all. I definitely wouldn't. I, keep I don't a care large if you believe birth. it's the... Something is happening where it's maybe a mind over matter situation. You're told you sat in a cursed chair and now you're going to die and then you do die. It's not even that it has to be that the chair's cursed. It's just a self-actual... Hmm. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. The mind is a crazy thing. Chairs are even crazier. <laughs> this one apparently is. So there's a group of builders working on a construction site nearby and they have a drink at the pub and... They are doing the same horrible thing that all men do. You do it. No, you do it. Yes. You do it. They are. And the youngest guy, they, like, get him to sit in the chair. And then they get back to the building site. And that same guy falls through the roof of the place they're building, hits the concrete, and dies. And that is sort of the final straw for Tony Earnshaw, the owner. He's like, enough. Also, for the record, this chair can't be comfortable because of how many people that have sat in it from 1702 to 1970. Well, the chair yeah. had to have been reupholstered. And why was the chair like, silent for so many years? 200 right? years. It was dormant. Or maybe they didn't report the desks. They didn't know. You know what I bet happened? What? Someone lit the black flame candle. A virgin lit the black flame candle. That's definitely what happened. Well, so Tony Earnshaw is like, this is enough. This is getting too weird for me and too sad and too, what's my level of responsibility? So he takes the damn murder chair and moves it to the cellar, which is sort of a solution and sort of not at all a solution. Because after that, there's a local delivery driver that comes through and he's downstairs putting stuff away, doesn't know anything about the chair does end up sitting in it, and then is killed in a car crash just a few hours later. So Earnshaw's now double creeped out and is like, I don't know if this chair is haunted. I don't know what the deal is, but I'm going to give it to a museum. And he gives it to the Thirsk Museum nearby and says, can you just put it somewhere where no one can sit in it? 
And today that's where it is. It's in the Thirsk Museum and it's displayed sort of, picture it, it's up on a wall Smart. pointed outward so you could never sit in it. Unless you were a ghost, ironically, then you could sit in it. Do you, you think it would float. reverse? Do you think you'd make you alive? Well, it's the first thing I'm going to try when I'm dead. Going to go visit the Thirsk Museum. All right, if you die, I'll go to the Thirsk Museum and I'll wait for you. Well, I have lots to do, but I'll be there. I just might be late. Okay. So in doing all my research for this, one great thing I found when I was just Googling and clicking and going through the things, there is a petition on change.org to burn the chair in a bonfire. And it's written by someone amazing. And I don't want to read the whole thing because it's just a little long, but I will read you the last paragraph and I'm going to try to do it justice. I want you to burn in a bond fire Mm. because it's an evil piece of needs to be destroyed it is currently on display at thirst museum i want it to be removed and burned in the bonfire so that the ghost can go free from hunting people also the body of thomas busby who cruised i think they mean cursed who cruised (laughs) the object must be dug up and cremated as well so that the cruise will go away. Again, I think it's a, I think curse. The only problem with this story that I Besides did find. the spelling? That is significant. The story. There's nothing wrong with the change.org. Okay, sure. I wouldn't change a thing about it. You, ironically, you wouldn't change anything about the change.org document. Oh, we're there again. <laughs> it's, it's pun time, folks. It's, well, you did bring up with utter day, utter dollar. All right, you're right. It's, that's fair game. <laughs> A furniture historian took a look at the chair. Weird job, furniture historian. Put it fifth on my list. So fifth, but, but next to what was the other one? A skeptic. Skeptic. We want, I want to be a professional skeptic. Professional skeptic. A furniture historian took a look at the chair. They said it's too new. They said that there's stuff in it that means that it was actually definitely built after 1840. And this whole mm-hmm. story happened in 1702. So maybe I have all these ideas where maybe it's a hoax. But maybe the chair that everyone's been sitting in really was haunted by Thomas Busby because he was hung across the street from the Busby Inn. Maybe he went in and started fucking with people regardless. Or, or maybe the real chair's still out there. Maybe the chair that ended up in the Thirsk Museum. (laughs) Carrie's pointing menacingly to a chair in this room. It is old. It could still be out there, though. Maybe the chair killer isn't the one in the museum and it's I'm, I'm just gonna say dear readers sit with care okay? watch that ass <laughs> watch that ass back that ass up but do it very carefully also i'd be worried about putting it in a bonfire <laughs> you love bonfire i love that bonfire and I is... you could just do a change.org now i'm gonna make tons how of them. many change.orgs are we gonna do Seven? so many at least at least bondfire new hobby dear readers i love you i try to give you my best try to give you my all try to give you haunted chairs try to give you bad cow puns <laughs> try to give you eating disorder advice <laughs> i am um a one-stop shop folks and what can i say come except you're down. welcome except, except come on, on down. down so we are cruising we're cruising. Cruising through this evening. Can you Gonna believe? have even a little wine, maybe? Sure. Oh, be great. great. Let's do it. 
Hey, thanks for coming. Like, subscribe, like, like, subscribe. <laughs> like, subscribe. Send us your favorite follow, cow puns. Cow pun us. Definitely tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your kids to listen to this podcast. <laughs> it's going to make everyone a better person. And everyone a little bit more skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got to sign off. Uh,